Our speaker was awarded a Regents Alumni Scholarship to Michigan University and there received his bachelor's degree. He became assistant television director of WWJ-TV in Detroit and was called then into military service in the Army. Well known to all of us, author of The Fearful Master, a second look at the United Nations published in 64. Our speaker was also the co-producer of the documentary motion picture, Anarchy USA, the expose of the communist blueprint for revolution disguised in the civil rights movement as we know it today. An expert in all of his chosen fields, he is now the producer of a new radio program entitled, Are You Listening, Uncle Sam? Ladies and gentlemen, a rousing welcome, please, for the distinguished author and lecturer, G. Edward Griffin. Thank you very much, Bruce. I have a little story I want to tell you about what almost happened. I think uh, Bruce would get a kick out of this one. Picture in your minds what might have happened if Goldwater had won the election. Now think back to what probably would have happened in the White House, a little ceremony to swear in President-elect Goldwater. Now, can you picture the scene? There he stands and when uh, all of the newsmen gather around with their lights on their cameras and all the earphones and the cables and everything, and finally they get the cue, they're on the air and they're ready to go, from the sidelines approaches a man in a long black robe, and lo and behold, it is Chief Justice Earl Warren. <laughs> and by golly, there it is on TV, just as plain as it can be. You take a look, and he's got in his hands a Bible. He walks up to Goldwater rather cautiously, and he says, place your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, and repeat after me. And then uh, Warren says, I do solemnly swear to discharge the duties of office of President of the United States to the best of my ability, and to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic, so help me <clears throat> God. And... President-elect Goldwater does just that. He raises his hand, places the other one on the Bible. He says, I do solemnly swear to discharge the duties of office of the President of the United States to the best of my ability and to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. So help me, God, Warren, you're under arrest. <laughs> Then there was the lady that was driving down the street and she saw this big billboard. It said, impeach Warren. Write in to P.O. Box such and such for information. And we got this postcard, so help me, ladies and gentlemen. It really came in. It said, gentlemen, I saw your billboard. I am most interested. But what is a Warren and how do you impeach it? <laughs> Thank you. 
You understand now what we mean when we say we have an educational job ahead of us. When approaching a subject like the Supreme Court, it frightens most people who do not have a background in law. I'll tell you, it surely frightened me when I took on the task of trying to uh, grapple with this subject because I had this mental image of standing up in front of a group of people and saying we should do this or we should do that and having some ACLU lawyer stand up and say, Mr. Griffin, uh, what law school did you graduate from? Or what makes you an expert? And of course, I never looked at a law book seriously until a year and a half or so ago. And this fear, I think, is in the back of most people's minds. They're afraid that they're going to be called on the carpet for their lack of authority to deal with such a complex subject as constitutional law. Well, let me assure you something, ladies and gentlemen, that you can check out with your attorney friends, and I think most of them will agree with you on this, whether they agree with you uh, on your conclusions. But when we come to the subject of constitutional law, you find that we are not really dealing with law at all. Let me repeat that because it's very important. Constitutional law is not law. It is philosophy. It is a philosophy of government upon which the laws are built. And if you go to the Constitution of the United States and read it very carefully, and then go to some of the private papers and speeches of the men who drafted that Constitution, and you study and absorb the political philosophy of these men that they cranked into that Constitution, then you are every bit as well equipped to grapple with the most complex questions of constitutional law as the most learned attorneys. So what I'm saying to you is don't be afraid to stand up and discuss these things with your attorney friends because even the attorneys disagree among themselves and the justices of the Supreme Court disagree among themselves and on exactly the same points that we will be discussing here today. So now with that out of the way, understanding that I'm not going to be presenting this in a legalistic form or a lawyer-oriented form, nevertheless, I'm going to present what I consider to be a very tight legal case. It will stand. And so let me begin in a pseudo-courtroom fashion by addressing you with these words. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, in this court of public opinion, the Constitution says that an appointed officer of the federal government, which includes justices of the Supreme Court, may be removed from office through the process of impeachment and conviction of either treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. I would like to offer to this court a consideration of the third category. Unfortunately, the Constitution does not define high crimes and misdemeanors. But this does not necessarily mean, ladies and gentlemen, that this phrase is not definable or not understandable to us. 
I shall attempt to introduce evidence before this court of public opinion which will demonstrate beyond all reasonable doubt that the justices of our current Supreme Court have committed three high crimes and misdemeanors. They are, one, they've undermined the forces of law and order. Two, they have given aid and comfort to the enemy. And three, they have destroyed those very vital checks and balances that were the pillars of our constitutional republic. Now, I contend to you, ladies and gentlemen of this jury, that if we can demonstrate that these three crimes have been committed, in fact, then they are of such a serious nature that if they don't constitute high crimes and misdemeanors, then nothing ever could. And so we turn, first of all, to perhaps the easiest one, law and order. Now let's take a look at a few of the rules, and I'm just going to touch upon a few of the milestone cases here. The first significant one is called the Mallory Rule. For those of you who want to rush to U.S. reports and dig out the case, look up Mallory versus U.S. This was back in 1957, and basically what this rule was is that a confession given voluntarily by a criminal is no good if that man is held too long before he is arraigned or brought before a magistrate of some kind. Ten hours was too long in the view of the Supreme Court. And so therefore, this man's confession was ruled inadmissible. Now let me explain what that means. We're getting into terminology sometimes which confuses people. Inadmissible evidence. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? What it means, ladies and gentlemen, is that if you were on a jury and you're sitting there in a courtroom and you are charged with making a decision, an evaluation that affects the life and death of this particular defendant, you need all the evidence you can get to come to an honest conclusion, don't you? Evidence is all you have to go on. But when the court rules that some evidence is inadmissible, that means that you, the jury, are never allowed to know that that evidence is, in fact, in existence. In other words, the court conceals evidence from you, the jury, when they declare evidence inadmissible. All right, that was the Mallory Rule, basically. 1961, we have what is called the MAP Rule, and you can check that one out under MAP versus Ohio. In the MAP case, it was decided by the Supreme Court that material evidence picked up by police officers without an official search warrant could not be used in court. It, too, was inadmissible. Now, that means, of course, that if an officer goes into an apartment, he suspects that there's a criminal in there. If he doesn't have a search warrant and he finds a gun lying on the table and maybe a stack of $1,000 bills and he picks it up, he didn't have a search warrant for that. You can't use it in court. Inadmissible evidence. Let's jump then to 1964, Escobedo v. Illinois. The Escobedo rule I'm sure you've all heard of. In this case, the arresting officer had failed to warn the criminal at the time of the arrest that the criminal had certain constitutional rights. So the confession was ruled out. Uh, it couldn't be used in court. Well, let's move on to 1966, which really was more of the Escobedo ruling. There were a few open ends. 
And so cases began to be appealed to the Supreme Court again for clarification. There were many cases that came together, and finally, 1966, they were all lumped together under the Miranda case. In the Miranda clarification of the Escobedo ruling, it was decided that the arresting officer must warn the suspect at the time of arrest that he not only has a right to an attorney, that he not only doesn't have to say anything, but that he can stop speaking any time he starts speaking, that he doesn't have to speak until an attorney shows up, or he can stop speaking after the attorney gets there, and not only that, but if he can't afford an attorney, that they'll provide one free of charge. Now, all of those things have to be said at the time of the arrest. And if you think I'm kidding, here is a direct quotation from the instructions given, the official instructions given to the Washington, D.C. police force. Lord knows Washington, D.C. has its problems enough as it is, maintaining law and order on the streets. But now on top of that, here is what the patrolman must say in the process of making an arrest. Quote, you are under arrest. That's a good start. Before we ask you any questions, you must understand what your rights are. You have the right to remain silent. You are not required to say anything to us at any time or to answer any questions. Anything you say can be used against you in court. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we question you and to have him with you during questioning. If you cannot afford a lawyer and want one, a lawyer will be provided for you. If you want to answer questions now without a lawyer present, you will still have the right to stop answering at any time. You also will have the right to stop answering at any time you speak to a lawyer." End quote. The only thing that's left out of that is a, good evening, sir. <laughs> All right, let's take one look still deeper. Let's get down to life. What's behind a name? We go back to Mallory. Mallory versus U.S. In 1956, there was a young woman doing her laundry in the basement laundry room of her apartment building in Washington, D.C. A man entered with a mask over his face. She was alone. He overpowered her and raped her. Now, when she went to the hospital, she was hysterical. They asked her questions. Could she identify her assailant? No, he wore a mask. They thought it was strange because nobody heard her cries for help. In the basement, there was an apartment normally occupied by the janitor, whose name was Andrew Mallory. Where was Mallory at this time? Well, they got hold of Mallory, and uh, he couldn't remember where he was at the time. The victim remembered that the man was of the general build and appearance of Mallory and wore clothes which were similar to the type of clothes which she had seen Mallory wear before. So Mallory became rather a suspect. And they questioned him. And it didn't take very long before Mallory broke under questioning and said, yes, I did it. Hence, we have the free voluntary confession. As I've already told you, because he was held 10 hours before he was officially arraigned before a magistrate, his confession was ruled out by the Supreme Court of the United States, and he was let free because the prosecuting attorney knew that without his confession, they could not prove that he was guilty. Now, let's carry it further. Three years later, 
In Philadelphia, the same Andrew Mallory broke into a house in a residential area and proceeded to rape a 21-year-old mother in her own home. As far as I'm concerned, ladies and gentlemen, the guilt of that second crime rests squarely on the hands of those justices of our modern Supreme Court. People versus Modesto. Now, this is a case that comes to us from the California State Supreme Court. I'm going to read several of these to you verbatim because I couldn't possibly synthesize them for you. But I want you to keep in mind as I go through them that the various state Supreme Courts have to follow the federal Supreme Court in these rules if they don't want their decisions to be overruled or overturned. So don't necessarily blame this on the California State Supreme Court even though they're not exactly angels over there either. But nevertheless, these decisions are based upon federal Supreme Court decisions. Now, this is People versus Modesto, February 11, 1965, verbatim. On October 29, 1961, their parents left two sisters asleep in bed and went to the father's place of employment. When they returned later that night, they found the younger sister, age nine, dead on the floor of her bedroom and the older sister, age 12, missing. There was blood in the room and on the bed of the missing girl. The defendant was arrested later that night at his home. There was blood in and on his car, and the blood on the rear seat was smeared as though a body had been dragged across it. The defendant's sledgehammer with a four-pound head was removed from the trunk of his car, and a chemist found that the hammer had been heavily smeared with blood and had been washed. At the time of his arrest, there was blood on the defendant's hands and clothing. Later that day, the defendant confessed to killing the two girls by hitting them with a sledgehammer. He picked up the older girl, took her to his car, drove her to a drainage ditch, and she was moaning loudly when he threw her into the water. The conviction and death penalty were reversed by the California Supreme Court in 1963 because the trial judge did not instruct the jury on the issue of manslaughter as well as on the issue of murder. The defendant was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death at a second trial. And the California Supreme Court in the present case reversed his conviction again, this time because defendant was not advised of his right to remain silent before he made his confession. People versus Anderson. October 1, 1965. On December 7, 1962, Kenneth Hammond, age 13, returned from school and found the defendant, Robert Anderson, in the blood-smeared kitchen of the Hammond home. The defendant stated that he had cut himself. Later, Kenneth discovered the body of his 10-year-old sister, Victoria, under some boxes and clothing in her room. He ran screaming from the house and called the police, when the police arrived, the defendant, first failing to open the door, finally did so. Next to the bed, the police found the nude body of the child, pierced by numerous stab wounds. They found a knife on the bed and blood throughout the premises. Bloody footprints, approximately the size of the victim's feet, stained the hallway between the master bedroom and the victim's room. Her dress appeared to have been ripped off and the undergarments slashed. 
The defendant admitted that he had been drinking and that he must have killed the girl. The autopsy report showed that the child died from the result of stab wounds of the left lung. The report listed 41 wounds ranging over the entire body from the head to the extremities. The tongue had been cut, the sexual organs had been mutilated, cigarette traces were found in one wound and a cigarette butt in another. Additional superficial cuts brought the total of wounds to over 60. Anderson was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. On October 1, 1965, the California Supreme Court, in a four to three decision, reversed the conviction and death penalty because of improper instructions to the jury, improper admission of incriminating statements made by the defendant at the time of his interrogation, and other technicalities. The only reason I'm reading these, ladies and gentlemen, is not because I enjoy them, not because I'm seeking sensationalism or anything like that, and I know they're very repulsive. It's for one reason only. We, most of us, have never come directly into a confrontation with the criminal sick mentality. And it's very difficult for most of us to understand that there are people who would kill, maim, destroy, sadistically delight in this sort of thing. And we hear all this nice talk about the rules laid down and how they protect the constitutional rights of the defendant, but what about the victim? How many times do you hear the Supreme Court of the United States talk about the victim? Doesn't the victim have any rights? And we tend to forget that the victim is often the missing witness in many of these cases that are brought to court. And that's the reason I've given you these details. Now, time doesn't permit us here to go through all of the other ways in which decisions of the Supreme Court have helped to undermine the forces of law and order. But one I would like to mention before I get off of this first category is the decision dealing with prayer. I wonder how many have thought of what effect these decisions have on crime. The strongest base under law and order in any society is morality. And any time the Supreme Court of the United States or any individual comes out and aligns himself against the forces of morality and religion, he is striking a blow at the foundation of law and order. And so you put all this together, ladies and gentlemen, and you find that the record of our modern Supreme Court is overwhelmingly conclusive. They have undermined the forces of law and order in our country. What about high crime and misdemeanor number two? Aid and comfort to the enemy. And right away, some people will say, what enemy? You're not gonna start playing that old saw about communism being the enemy, are you? Yep. Who says that the communists are the enemy? Well, as a starter, would you believe the communists? <laughs> I'm not gonna take your time reading extensive quotations from Mao Zedong or Khrushchev or Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Everybody's read them, they just don't believe them if they prefer not to. 
Because we get to a philosophical dilemma in a sense, and this was once thrown up at me, some student, I've forgotten what university it was, he stood up and he said, um, aren't you a little bit mixed up? <laughs> in one breath you say, don't believe the communists, they're liars, they'll lie in their teeth, you can't believe a thing they say. And then in the next breath you turn around and you say, believe the communists when they say that they've declared war on you. Interesting question. When you are confronted with two levels of morality coming from the same individual, you must accept the lowest level of morality. In other words, an honest man can never advocate dishonesty, but a dishonest man can easily advocate honesty, dishonestly advocated. So if you find one individual advocating at the same time a high principle and a low principle that are both contradictory to each other, you must accept the lowest level, the lowest denominator of morality involved in their contradictory statements. And that's just common sense. If they say that they're our enemy in one breath and then the next breath they say they're our friends, you better accept the first statement. And even if you're wrong in your assumption, you're on the safe side of the choice. All right. The communists are our enemy. Let's not belabor that point. And it's real war, ladies and gentlemen. We may call it a cold war if it makes you feel better. But uh, if we lose it, the stakes of this war are every bit as total, if not more so, than the stakes of any war in history. Let me, let's for the sake of the record here, introduce into this court of public opinion a few exhibits of what the communists do you know, their actions speak much louder than their words. The reason I'm going to do this is because there's a widespread view among many people that the Communist Party in America is primarily a political party. This, by the way, is the view of the Supreme Court of the United States, that primarily it's an unpopular minority political party. Let's take a look at that assumption with the communist actions, not words. I'm going to refer you to a few documents here. Right into the superintendent of documents and ask for this report called Murder International Incorporated, a subtitle, Murder and Kidnapping as an Instrument of Soviet Policy. Now what this is, ladies and gentlemen, is the testimony of Peter Deryabin, who was a high-ranking official in the Soviet secret police. And he came out and he told what the communist apparatus has in operation all around the country. Kidnapping is a matter of course for them. They'll come into the United States, into all free nations, and if there's somebody that they want, they're apt to just pick them up, give them a Mickey Finn, put them in a trunk, and ship them back to the Soviet Union. They've done this. They kidnap people right on the streets of New York. And Daryabin tells about this, all of these fantastic things that they do. Blackmail. Oh, that's one of their favorite policies is to try and maneuver someone into a compromising position and blackmail them into helping the communist cause. Doesn't sound much like a political party operation uh, as you go through this. The interesting part, though, of this is to read the case history of Bogdan Stashinsky, a professional Soviet assassin working for the KGB. He was detailed to commit political murder 
in West Germany. In fact, he killed two men, Lev Rebet and Stefan Bandera, potential leaders of the counter-revolution, the anti-communist counter-revolution in Europe. Bogdan Stashinsky was recruited into the KGB as a young man, 18 years of age, completely brainwashed, sold on communism. He was a dedicated communist. He honestly believed that these men were enemies of the state, and he was detailed to shadow them. He followed them. He had their daily activities right down to a gnat's eyelash. He knew what time they got up in the morning, what time they came home, what route they traveled. He even went in and made a wax impression of the key on the door of uh, Rabet, you might say he was sort of carrying on the precinct work for his political party. <clears throat> and then he got the instructions, murder these men, and that hit him. He wasn't prepared for that. Murder was just something he hadn't thought about, I guess. A man from Moscow showed up, and this is the interesting part, with a little weapon, a little larger than a fountain pen. He said it was made up of three parts. There was a trigger mechanism with a spring. There was a center section with a percussion cap, a small explosive. And finally, the third section contained a glass ampule holding what he described as prussic acid. And the idea was that Stashinsky was to take this weapon to his victim and fire it very close to the man's face. And instantly, the man would drop dead. I mean, instantly. And there would be no trace of any foul play, unless they were suspecting it. But normally, an autopsy would not show up that there was cyanide present or this prussic acid vapor. Dushinsky did it. He describes how he cased Rebet, and finally, he saw Rebet get off of the streetcar. He went into the apartment building so that when Rebet came in the main door, Stashinsky came down the stairs, and they passed each other on the stairs very casually. Stashinsky had this weapon rolled up in a piece of newspaper, and as he came to Rebet on the staircase, he pushed the trigger, fired it into his face. He reeled forward. Stashinsky walked out the front door, and that was it. The newspapers the next day carried the story. Lev Rebet found dead on the stairs of his apartment, cause of death, a coronary. Same thing happened to Stefan Bandera about nine months later. After having completed these two successful assignments, he was called back to the Soviet Union, wined and dined. They held a big reception in his honor, and they issued him one of the highest medals that you can get in the Soviet Union, the award of the, of the Red Banner. He was a hero. That's what it takes to be a hero in the International Communist Organization. He was detailed again. To do more of the same, his conscience was finally getting the best of him. He said, I cannot murder again. He tried every way, by the way, to avoid committing these first two murders, but he knew that he was involved so deeply that if he failed to carry out his assignment, they wouldn't permit him to live because he knew too much. But finally, he couldn't take it any longer, and the great risk to himself, he fled into the free world and sought asylum in the American embassy. We turned him over to the West German Embassy, and he was brought to trial, and he told his story. Get this, ladies and gentlemen, and read it and see if it sounds like a political party to you. The important point is this is going on. This apparatus is here in the United States of America, and these people talk about the American branch of communism being nothing but another branch, just that, a branch. 
Now, everybody knows this, you say. We know that the communists are bad guys. Who's going to argue with that? I can name nine men on the Supreme Court who will argue with that. They've never heard of these things, ladies and gentlemen, or if they have heard of them, they don't believe them. Because through their decisions, they insist on treating the communists in this country as merely a political party and giving them all the constitutional protections and guarantees as a minority political party. They've released known communist leaders from prison. They've reinstated them to their jobs with back pay. They've put these people back in government positions, including teaching positions, which are probably the most sensitive spots of all. They have placed tremendous obstacles in the path of investigating agencies, such as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. That is why you will find that in the last 10 years, primarily, there has been practically no reluctant testimony from witnesses before any investigating committee. All the testimony has been from friendly witnesses. We no longer have the power to require people to answer questions relating to the internal threat of communism. The Supreme Court, through its decisions, has nullified all of the individual state anti-subversive laws. The court has said that you people in the states must depend on the federal legislation which we have. The federal government will take care of the communist menace. And then finally, through their decisions, they've completely wrecked the federal anti-subversive laws. A neat little switch. So now, ladies and gentlemen, we have literally no legal protection in this country against the internal menace of communism. And that is aid and comfort to the enemy. Now, point number three, I'm going to have to go very quickly through. I've said that the United States Supreme Court has destroyed those vital checks and balances of our constitutional republic. Some people can argue whether it's good or bad, but nobody can argue over the fact that we no longer have these checks and balances. What sovereign states? Where are they today? They're up to the federal trough for money. Some of them go through the motions, are going to stand firm, but when the chips are down, they're right there for the money. And what about the division of power within the three branches of government? What a laugh. Congress is just a rubber stamp of the president, a variable density rubber stamp, depending on the popularity of the president and the proximity of the election. We hear of the president's program, the president's legislation. It used to be that Congress was sent there to say what we should have in the way of laws or not. Now it's the president. If you want to satisfy your curiosity on that, get hold of the U.S. Government Organizational Manual. I've been collecting these for about six years, and they get thicker and thicker and thicker as an indication of the growth of government. But even that's misleading because they make the paper thinner and thinner and thinner. They get... it's, it's quite interesting. But now here's the point. In order to describe the functions and operations and the authorities of the judicial and the legislative branch of government, the judicial and legislative branch requires 44 pages. And to describe the offices and the function and the authority of the executive branch of government, the president's branch, with all of the bureaucracies that come under his authority, requires 517 pages. Just to list them. We have government by bureaucracy, ladies and gentlemen, and that translates into 
government under the authority of the President of the United States. The President can do literally anything he wants to do legally if he decides to invoke the necessary orders, including the emergency wartime measures which have been set up for him. Absolutely anything, legally. And so when we speak of division of power and checks and balances, we're talking about a bygone era. We just don't have them anymore. And how did they slip away? Well, through the Supreme Court, ladies and gentlemen, through a process called interpretation. Now, let me define that very quickly. Interpretation in the vernacular of the Supreme Court means to interpret a clause of the Constitution to mean exactly the opposite of what it says. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. Read U.S. versus Wrightwood Dairy Company where there was milk produced by cows in Illinois, sold in Chicago, never crossed uh, state boundary lines, and yet the court found that that violated interstate commerce clause. Why? Because it was sold in Chicago in competition with milk that did come across the state lines. And since, since it was taking the place of that milk, that affected it indirectly. And then Wickard versus Filburn is that famous farmer that grew 239 bushels of wheat on his farm. He fed it to all of his cattle and pigs on his own farm. It never even got off of his farm, much less across interstate lines. And yet the Supreme Court declared that that was interstate commerce because... You see, he didn't buy wheat on the open market because he grew his own. But if he hadn't grown his own, he would have bought wheat on the open market. And if he hadn't fed all of that wheat to his pigs, then he would have sold it on the open market and it would have competed with wheat that came in from out of state. Either way, whatever Wickert didn't do affected interstate commerce. All right. And then read Katzenbach versus McClung, which is 1964, one of the Civil Rights Act test cases, and exactly the same reasoning behind Ollie's barbecue. Ollie was uh, selling food to only customers in uh, Birmingham. None of them that they knew of could be said to have come in from outside of uh, Alabama. And yet they figured it out. Ollie bought meat, and some of that meat came from outside of the state. And since he refused to, to sell to Negroes, and of course, I don't want to get into that question because I don't want to defend uh, his, his sociological views on that. That's not the issue. The issue was, did the federal government have authority to tell Ollie's Barbecue what to do? And if they did have the authority, what clause of the Constitution gave them that authority? And lo and behold, they're still working on the Interstate Commerce Clause. They said that because Ollie and his sociological views in refusing to sell to Negroes, because he did that, he bought less meat than he would have otherwise. And hence, he affected interstate commerce. How ridiculous can you get? Because if you want to play that game, if suddenly the Negroes who were denied access to his restaurant came in there, then the restaurants that they used to go to were selling less meat now. And it all balances out. But they don't look at it that way. All right, the centralization of power, ladies and gentlemen, into the federal government and then into the hands of the president eventually has been effected primarily through Supreme Court decisions hinging on this kind of an interpretation of not only the Interstate Commerce Clause but the General Welfare Clause, the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment, 
the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, and then through certain doctrines that they've developed out of thin air, the Federal Supremacy Doctrine, the Treaty Supremacy Doctrine, and as I've already mentioned, the Doctrine of National Emergency. Now, what can we do? I would, at this point, normally list all the alternatives. You know, we can pass laws in Congress to reverse some of the decisions, or we can pass laws which would deny the appellate jurisdiction in certain areas to the justices of the Supreme Court. We can amend the Constitution. We can do all kinds of things. Most of these have certain things to be said for them. But there's one big thing that can be said against all of them, and that is, in my opinion, regardless of the merits or the demerits of these proposals, we need fewer laws, not more. I don't know what makes people think that merely adding a few more words on a piece of paper and adding it to the Constitution or putting it in the books is going to change a thing. They've had clear language for 200 years that they've been able to twist. They can twist any phrase that you care to write and put in there. And so there's one obvious road left over, and it's called impeachment. And there's several things to be said for the impeachment proceedings. First of all, it is final. There's one thing sure, the justices of the Supreme Court aren't going to declare unconstitutional their own impeachment. They can't do that. Whereas they could declare unconstitutional just about any other solution you care to name. Secondly, it's relatively easy for the average person to understand. They may not understand exactly the details of impeachment, but they get a pretty good idea of what you're talking about. Maybe the lady wants to find out how you impeach a Warren, but um, <laughs> you can imagine how far you'd get with billboards on the road that said, limit the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. What is that? So it has to be a popularized thing. People can basically understand what impeachment means. As I've already pointed out, it does not needlessly add laws to the books. And fourth, it is a movement which is already well underway. Tremendous momentum already built up. Why scrap all of that and start over on something else again, which we're not sure is going to be any more easy than what we're already doing? And finally, I believe the process of impeachment gets to the root of the problem, the root of the problem, which is the men on the court. Because any plan which ignores the, uh, the human element the philosophical views of individuals on the court and rely solely on fancy laws, verbiage, and tricky language, I think is doomed to frustration and ultimate defeat. And so in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have attempted in the time allotted to me to introduce evidence that the justices of our Supreme Court have committed three high crimes and misdemeanors. They have undermined the forces of law and order. They have given aid and comfort to the enemy. They have destroyed the vital checks and balances of our constitutional republic. And if these three things do not constitute high crimes and misdemeanors, then nothing ever could. The Constitution not only gives us the privilege of demanding impeachment of federal officers if they have committed high crimes and misdemeanors, it also places upon us the responsibility to demand it. 
we as citizens are equally responsible to uphold and defend that Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. And you in this jury must vote. You cannot escape it. The rules of this court are such that your refusal to speak is automatically registered as a vote of acquittal. You will vote one way or the other. And the only way for you to vote against the present trend is for you to be willing to stand up and be counted. And finally, I'd like to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, in this jury, that you are not mere spectators in the court. You are the plaintiff. This is your case. The law and order being undermined is the law and order in front of your house. The enemy receiving aid and comfort is your enemy. And the country being converted from a republic into a democratic dictatorship is your country. And most assuredly, the life and liberty at stake is none but yours. Thank you.